welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, a J10 initiative. So this this is Perry West. He is our intro guy. Do you recognize it? That's our intro music right there. That, that's the guy. Thank you, Perry. They don't listen. Get a haircut. Yeah, they don't listen. Anybody listen? Who? Uh, talking about Perry. What? You guys have bead eyes here? <laughs> you guys have pearl eyes? From what? Oh. You just brought it in for me. Total diva. Sponsor of St. John the Twenty Third. All right, guys, we have we have two Catholic stuff you should know whiskey glasses today. How we're going to give those away, I don't know. If you guys can think something, quiz show. We also have some Catholic stuff stickers. If anybody wants stickers, and we have stickers now. Yes, we have stickers now, guys. I made stickers. and we also have the Father Nathan Goble mullet that you can take a picture of and hashtag, <laughs> hashtag mullet me. You did bring it. I, did, I didn't know I brought it. I did bring it. Yes. <laughs> Is it good? It's very good. Can I wear that? I want to see. <laughs> I th- I, this thing looks like Chewbacca. That does not. <laughs> Father Sean McGrath actually wore this thing. He did at the uh, L.A. Congress. <laughs> Wait, does it look any you're, you're different? better in person. <laughs> That's terrifying. <laughs> supposed to be terrifying. Yeah, it is terrifying. Right. I'm looking at it. Glory to Jesus Christ. Glory forever. Thank you, Byzantine. It's actually, I mean, like, you're in the Easter season. I'm sorry, so. sorry. Christ is risen. Christos vos crece. Christos vos crece. All right. A couple Slavic speakers, too. And uh, Christos Anesti. Thank you. You don't get a mug. Couple Greeks. You have a Byzantine. What's Italian? Don't you? We do. How many people are here from the Byzantine outreach? Three p.m. Sundays. One, two, three. All right. It didn't advertise well enough. Obviously. Half. Three and a half. Actually, my mom was supposed to be here. I don't see her. So if my own mom bails on me, then I don't. I don't blame anybody else. She's seen me before. All right. Well, so we do, you wanted- know, do you know who we are? Like, I'm not, not trying to say we're a big deal, but, like, do you know which one's which? <laughs> kind of, yeah, exactly. A little bit. So I'm Father Nathan. Father Michael O'Loughlin. Father Mike from Rome. So all the advertising was supposed to be just the two of us, but Father Mike's our, our special guest and, our, and our, our surprise guest because normally, for those who don't know us, um, there are four of us. And Father Nathan and I record here in Denver, the Denver area. And uh, Father Mike and Father John Neppel record in Rome because they're both studying there. Um, I went, quick Father Mike story, you know the, um, you've seen the advertisements for the Dead Sea Scrolls happening at the museum down in Denver. So Father Mike is probably the greatest Dead Sea Scrolls scholar in the entire Western United States right now. I don't, I know about the Dead Sea Scrolls, but I don't, I don't want to take that. I, I think you Not are. Not on the air. Who else? Who else? Well, we're going to find Father out. Father Andreas okay. Hope. We're going to find out. Really? I don't know. Dead Sea Scrolls? Okay. No. <laughs> People will let us know. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. If, if you want to do a, like a face-off. Anybody? 
Anybody think they know the Dead Sea Scrolls better than Father Mike Rapp? Anybody so, you know? We don't have to make this. It, really quickly, explain what the Dead I've Sea Scrolls had... are. What are the Dead Sea Scrolls? The Dead Sea Scrolls. This is <laughs> going to go dry really quick. <laughs> no, we'll, we'll keep it up. Okay, the Dead Sea Scrolls are um, 900 manuscripts found n- next to the Dead Sea in, uh, in Palestine in 1947 by Bedouin traders, and um, they are manuscripts mostly biblical of the Old Testament, uh, but also some esoteric works of apocalyptic Judaism and some liturgical texts of a little group of kind of mystical Jews that were living near the Dead Sea uh, between the 3rd and 1st centuries B.C. So a shepherd was just walking through the mountains... And one of his goats probably ran into a cave, and he threw a rock into the cave to try to scare the goat out, and he heard something break. And he went up there, and he found jars that contained scriptures, etc., that were over 2,000 years old in this cave. And a lot of these were just, I mean, it was, it was an amazing moment for scripture scholarship. Um, so Mike, uh, Father Mike studies at the uh, Biblicum in Rome, and so... Yeah, he gets I mean, all fanboy about these things. One of the most exciting finds was a, a, a full scroll of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. We, had, we didn't have any um, complete versions that were older than 1000 AD. So this one was 1,000 years older than that. And it was almost identical to the, um, to the book that we, we know that was copied up to that point of 1,000 uh, years later. So one of the debates was when we read a Bible... Are we looking at the texts that were written down so long ago and copied faithfully, or are we looking at something that has lots of mistakes that have accrued over the course of history? And this was proof that what we're looking at now in the Hebrew Bible is almost identical to what it was a thousand years before and around the time, just before the time of Christ. So it was a pretty exciting find. Did they get to sell those? They did. Yeah, they sold them first to like the local one of the local patriarchs. Uh, some of them were traded to the United States. They were some were on on sale in the New York Times, even like on the open market before they knew what they were. And now, after they've all been discovered, a lot of them have been acquired by the uh, the Israeli state and put into a museum in Jerusalem. You can go there. Uh, this exhibit in Denver uh, has eight or nine scrolls on loan from that museum in Jerusalem. And then there's a few scraps that are around museums and universities around the world. What they said was a bunch of, uh, so a bunch of Americans came, archaeologists came, and then hired these Bedouins to do the, the dirty work for them. Like, like, you know, dig up the scrolls and find more scrolls, go searching the caves. Well, as soon as the American archaeologists went to sleep for the night, these guys would go back, find all the really expensive ones, and sell them themselves. So it's pretty amazing that we got all these People things back. Crafty. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. But that's not our topic at all. Yeah, that's just Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah. Life is good. <laughs> Beer is cold. Oh. People are crazy. Did you hear any of that? Dead Sea Scrolls? I should repeat that. No, they're asleep. <laughs> they're actually oh, asleep no. right they're now. They're already like, oh, no. Give me another beer. So they supposedly call this the Diva Mic because it's what? the loudest one. What did you go, what did you go on the Dead Sea Scroll like tangent part, for? Is that just because it's... Because I was telling this to... I don't know. He's remember. trying to build Mike up. Father Mike up. Yes. So, yeah, exactly. Well, for... I mean, we were hanging out. Yeah. Were you telling a story? Or that's it? We this out. is how we know that Father Mike is actually like an expert in this because one of the museum panels said that uh, this scripture that was quoted from the Dead Sea Scrolls said this, and then Mike said, 
actually, that's the wrong scroll. And then he went like this. (laughs) 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 Which is true. Seriously, it was the wrong scroll. Why are we talking about this? Usually I'm just made fun of by Father John in our rooms in Rome. Right. And now it's in front of a crowd. I'm embarrassed. I blush easily. We were already told what we were supposed to talk about, though, when we came here. What can about I just this? Can... what about this? Father Nathan might be wearing sweatpants. <laughs> I am. I am wearing sweatpants. And they're supposed they to are look... under armor, black sweatpants. Black clerical sweatpants. I just this got off the un... slopes like uh, two hours ago or something like that and didn't have time to go to my rectory, so I begged Father Rocco, please give me a pair of pants. And, and he went upstairs, and I was like, oh, thank God. What a good man. He, I'm wearing his clerical shirt. It's going to have a little, like, Krakengard Old Spice residual <laughs> odor on it. So just FYI. But then I, he went upstairs. Like, he ran upstairs, and I was like, oh, good. He's going to get me those pants. And then he came downstairs with sweatpants, and I was like, I can pull that off. <laughs> and you do. Till I outed you. Yeah, when you, when you model like this, you pretty much can get away with wearing sweatpants anywhere. Father Michael's got his signature vest. I just met this dude, Jimmy, who's got a sweet rocking uh, leather vest. And it's very, like, <laughs> northern Colorado, and I love it. And I'm trying to get him to hook me up with one of these things. Um, this is, I think this is cowboy country. It's kind of an Aggie-type school, isn't it? Yeah. It's Rams? Yes, you. Where's the Mustang Some breaker? One of you, one of the men here is trying to break a Mustang. So, Ooh, ladies, yeah. I mean, pay attention. <laughs> that's, like a tre- that's like setting up a treasure hunt. <laughs> just in case, just in case, like, you know, because I know that your heart was all a flutter when you found out that the export in Western Colorado or Western America in the Dead Sea Scrolls, but he's not available, okay? That's true. But there that's is true. a Mustang breaker here, and he just might be. Oh, here we go. So we're at the top of the hour now. Um, So I was told, I was told by um, uh, Father Joe Grady and was it Jamie as well? Yeah. So can we have Jamie stand, please? Best gumbo. If we're slow right now, it's because she just fed us the best gumbo we've ever had in our life for dinner. Delicious. So I, when Father Joe Grady uh, became a priest and then eventually got sent here, I wanted to make sure that I welcomed him not only into the presbyterate, but just into, like, you know, presbyteral life. Like, you know, we're kind of priests together and everything. So um, I called him up uh, from my office phone, which doesn't have caller ID, and I said, can I speak to Father Joe Grady? And the lady said, yes, can, can I ask who's calling? And I said it was Father Nathan, but don't tell him it's Father Nathan. And she patched me through, and he, he says, uh, uh, hello, this is Father Joe. And I was like, hi, uh, Tom Coughlin, Nine News, uh, wondering about the recent scandals at Colorado State. Oh. <laughs> and then he hung up. <laughs> Did I call back a second time and do that? I mean, you know, Tom Coughlin, you know, Classic, you know, fake name, whatever. Um, anyways, but uh, Father Joe was, was insistent. You have to come up and do a theology on tap uh, up at Colorado State. We had done one at Benedictine College, which was super cool. Didn't want to do it. Uh, never, never been really to Benedictine College with the students before. I've been to Colorado State. I like this campus. 
I hate to say it, I probably fit in a lot better here than I do in Boulder. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, they know. I do. So, Father Mike, Father Mike, well, how many of your siblings went here? Uh, two of them graduated. Three of them went here, and then two of them are uh, alum. Uh, my older brother's a chemical engineer. Maggie. And, yeah, Maggie, Maggie was here, and then uh, Hannah is a math teacher now, too. But these were years ago. You know the, Maggie. The more you know. Bow, 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 bow. Yeah, I, I consider our family a Rams family. I had two siblings graduate here, too. Joseph yep. and Teresa O'Loughlin. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Focus kids. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. And I have had too much to drink at New Belgium before, so I fit right in. <laughs> um, but anyway, so Father Joe was like, you have to come up here. We really want you to come. Excited. Whatever. I finally commit, you know. He just wore me down, multiple calls, text <laughs> messages, and the way in which I got him to finally, I, I finally committed. I said, I will do it if you have to become an adult and Never. put, uh, what, you have to set up your answering machine. Because <laughs> he was only dealing with text messages, and I was like, you know, what happens if somebody can't get a hold of you, you know, text messages, whatever? And he's like, I'm not, I'm not doing that. Did he I do said, it? then I'm not coming. <laughs> so in case in case any of you ever you know like have Father Joe's number, it's written on the stall and like the, <laughs> you can leave a message now. But anyways, he said we're so excited you're coming. This is what you're speaking about. I'm like what what what? Because you guys are doing a series, right? It was Bishop Jorge. I think he started it. Really? Yeah. Nobody. So we could have done whatever. This is why we're more obedient. Yes. Okay. So we are talking on the other, and in particular, Jesus the Stranger. Yeah. Is that uh, a song, The Stranger? You would know. I have no idea. Oh. Huh? What? Oh, she, she's being pious. No, he's oh, yeah. asking about like a classic rock song. I heard that. <laughs> <I heard that. laughs> Anyways. Aren't you? Yeah, I'm talking Can about classic rock song. Yeah, classic rock song. Yeah, classic rock song called The Stranger. <laughs> she was talking about Jesus. Okay. Yeah, we'll get, we'll get to that. <laughs> we'll get there, yeah. This is the part where we do kind of the banter. It's sort of like, you know, just getting into uh, it, you know, like easing the tension, baby. Yeah. And then we dive into the topic. So, so you guys are bantered out. Enough, like, you know, fiddle farting around. Here we go. Yes. So let's, let's begin with the Annunciation. A very Today good place to start. For you Roman Catholics who like to move things around a bit. <laughs> we, we, we did, you did you interrupt the great Holy Week? We did. They, Jesus and Mary are friends. They, they can <laughs> oh, share yeah. a feast. Yeah, yeah. So it was, uh, it was Palm Sunday, right? But you didn't feast on that day. Yes. We, we double feast. On Holy Week? Yes. Really? It's a mitigation. I like the sound wine. of that, but so, I'm not so, sure I could do they that. Get so we two Byzantine crumbs of bread. <laughs> so we Watch Byzantines out. normally give up meat, dairy, wine, and oil during <laughs> sex. the whole 40 days. <laughs> right? I, I gave up sex along with everything else. Absolutely. Perpetual. Well, Isn't that true in the, in the Byzantine church? Um, if you're a priest, yes. So mo- I'm not to scandalize. Most of our priests are married in the Byzantine right. church. Then the Byzantine church, married men can get ordained priests, not the other right. way around. So married men can be ordained priests, but there are days of abstinence from sex, um, including most fasting days. But I don't need to worry about that. So, so if you go to a Byzantine married priest during Lent and he's extra grumpy, <laughs> just go to Father Mike now because you he's celibate why. and he's <laughs> no big deal. Exactly. I'm always grumpy. Normal All right, grumpy. so we're talking always about the Annunciation. Grumpy. Sorry. Um, so, 
and so we celebrate the Annunciation on Palm Sunday, yes. But the Annunciation, Roman Catholics, she all celebrates today, which is beautiful. She gets her own day. Um, Jesus is the other and the stranger. Actually, one way to tie this in, I love this, because also to bring it back to the Byzantine. In the Byzantine church, our architecture of our churches, you have the cruciform base, so you have it's the, the edges are squared, and you, you would have like any cathedral, like the cathedral in Denver, cruciform. If you looked up at the top, it looks like a cross. On the top of that, though, like actually the, the Roman cathedral in Denver, has a dome. And so the dome is symbolic of the cosmos. If you're out in Nebraska or somewhere where it doesn't have, have um, um, people, mountains. <laughs> oh, <sorry. laughs> and mountains. Lights. <laughs> Technology. <Civilization>. <laughs> <laughs> They got Mustangs. You, you can the, the cosmos look like a dome. So you can you know you look around you you see all you see is stars. So you, you it's the immeasurable cosmos, the immeasurable world of God, the creation that you can see when you see the stars and the and everything else. Um, and then you have the cruciform base. So the the base is measurable. You never have kind of the the dome rest on the ground. Although the Greek Orthodox Cathedral in Denver does do that, but you really should have the dome resting upon a structure. And the idea here is that the structured world that has you know uh, scientific laws and then the laws of, of gravity, physics, etc. All of that is measurable. We can understand it. We can learn more about it, and it's a beautiful thing. The cosmos rests on that. So if you want to understand where heaven meets earth, where God. God meets man, you have this very explicit image of the cosmos resting on the measurable world. So if you want to go to where, where, God, where God is, you want to go to the house of God, another thing you see in Byzantine churches is, is the onion dome, the, the kind of, you've seen it in, in uh, St. Peter's Square and things like that in Russia, but there's these domes that kind of look like onions. They actually symbolize um, flames. So it's kind of like if you're walking around a city and you want to find where God dwells, you look for a flame on the top of a church, and it reminds us of Pentecost, right? Tongues as a fire can be rest on the apostles. So every church, in a sense, has a little flame above it. Um, and then so you go there to find where God is. You walk in, and then you see the meeting place between the dome of the cosmos, the kind of the immeasurable cosmos, the immeasurable God, and the measurable earth, the nave, we call it the nave. You guys use that word too, right? Mm-hmm. Right? So the nave is like from navy. It's like a boat. In other words, when we're in this boat, we're all moving the same. Latin word. I'm sorry. Latin word. Excuse me. The Latin word nave. Oh, we took that from you. Oh, we copied it. Okay, I'll take it. So we 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 we, we copied from the Latin with Constantinople and like. No. Sorry. Go on. Go on. So we we walked around southern Italy to the to the graves of the apostles last year as companions. We don't have to get into this right now. We walked around and and we we like. Saint Matthew, who was down there, Saint uh, Saint Andrew, of course, Andrew. and Saint Matthew. Saint Matthew. So we have these two apostles, and where did Italy Saint, get them from? Saint Mark in Venice. Yeah, all the jewels in Venice. Yes. So everything nice that we found that, them like those that, Bedouin traders. <laughs> everything nice that Italy has, they stole from Constantinople. In other words, so so anyway, so that's that's what we're referring to here. So we stole the word nave from the Romans. We'll take it's it. Good trade. Yes. Good trade. <laughs> we got the saints. <laughs> You got the bodies of the saints, and we got the word nave. So, um, so the, the, the nave, it's a boat. We're all moving in the same direction. That's where we gather. God is in the cosmos. At the meeting place, to get back on topic, at the meeting place where the dome of the cosmos meets the measurable scientific earth, you have an icon on the back wall 
of the only time you ever call a woman wide. But it's an icon of the mother of God, and we call her Platitera, which means wider than the heavens or wider than the lands. Because in because she's pregnant. And within Mary, she she is larger, in other words, larger because even the cosmos, the heavens and earth cannot contain God. She contained God within her womb. So we call her larger, wider, greater than the heavens. And it's just an icon of her pregnant with Jesus. But that's, of course, what, what Annunciation is. This is the moment of the incarnation, the moment that, that God and man met. We put that in the place where the cosmos meets the earth. Um, but in a real sense, Christ being God and now a man was a stranger. And he was the other. He was... He was something that was unknown before that, something that we rejoice over, but, but something that was completely unknown. I like the, just the whole idea of mystery around the incarnation. I, a different image of this possibly is like you can imagine God kind of looking down from the cosmos and then meeting human beings who have been reaching for God all that time. I love that, that description of the architecture. I didn't know that. Um, I had a, a recent, I made a recent retreat and my uh, Reflection. my meditation on the Incarnation was one of the face of the angel. It, this is kind of strange. I'm kind of strange, but it's my mind. Uh, welcome. Uh, the, the, the thought of the angel, I was picturing the face of the angel and the joy moments before uh, appearing to Mary and delivering this message, having been given this, this sort of um, commission, this mission to deliver the message of the Incarnation to Mary. And the joy and the, the, the profound uh, excitement at the secret that this angel has in delivering this message. And it was in- incredibly edifying to me. I spent an hour just in, in rapture, I think, over um, just the thought of the excitement of this moment and, and being in the privilege of being called to deliver that message. But it was kind of like the meeting place of heaven and earth. Mm. Um, but a meeting place that also had um, this, this kind of profound mystery about it. You know, heaven encountering the other and Mary encountering the other in this angel. You know, like meeting, me, the he- meeting of heaven and earth. I also thought the same thing when you have the, uh, the ascension. Because all of a sudden, uh, and, and a lot of our... our Catholic hymnography is beautiful about this. The moment that, that Christ ascends into heaven, you now have a human being in heaven for the first time. I mean, like, in, in that sense, you know. Oh, so yeah. it's like, like, all of a sudden, the, the heavens were kind of shocked. Earth was shocked by the fact that God became man, but now the heavens are shocked by the fact that there's a man in heaven and, and a man within living within the Trinity, you know. And that's, in a sense, what we're, what we're flattered by. I had a little kid in my children's homily go way deeper than I wanted to go this past Sunday. And I was like, I was they like do you, that. Were, you were there, Perry. I was like, so what's your favorite part about Jesus being God? And Well, he created everything and he loves us. And okay, very good. What's your favorite thing about God, about Jesus being a man? We wouldn't be redeemed unless he was a man. I was like, you're five. Yeah, like, wait a <laughs> where, where did you get that from? You That's know? pretty good. I was with Father John when he was giving the same homily. To the, at, the, at the kids' Easter Mass. Okay. And he said, what's special about this day? And the little girl about the same age said, we get a lot of chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. She's coming from the earth side, I think. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I forget what I asked my niece one time. She's now 14. If you, ever, if you listen to the podcast, she was the one on the A Child Likeness podcast. And she's oh, brilliant. Yeah, oh. absolutely. And I said something about... You know, what, what is your, I think I said, like, what is your favorite thing about Jesus, just in general? And she's like, um, 
the fact that he allows us to sin. Like the fact that he allows, he, he's not a puppet master, in other words. He allows us to be weak. Like he allows us to sin. Yeah, the freedom to do well. that. Not, not that she wanted to do that, I hope. But, but she, you know, she, she, she like appreciated that about him. He wasn't a puppet master. I was like, and I think she came to that, about that on her own. It was really beautiful. Yeah. You're related to like these pr- profoundly mystical children? Oh, I am. <laughs> My little goddaughter, Annie, she's even more incredible. She, she just begs to go to confession like every month, and she's like eight. Yeah, she's just she's got a beautiful soul. I can't share what she says, but um, she she has an absolutely beautiful soul about this desire. You know, to it's not it's not something that's messed up. It really is beautiful. So, all right, back to the stranger. Yeah. So Bishop Jorge really wanted it to be a uh, like what I heard. What Josh told me was that you know when you guys are walking around campus and you you know have your head earbuds in and you're not really you know a, a, a paying attention to the other human beings walking by you you know they they become the stranger everybody else becomes a stranger anybody who is is in any way in inconvenience us inconveniencing us is in our way um i i live 10 minutes from my parish 10 minute walk and i drive all the time i rarely walk it's just i i'm, I'm under 10 minutes till i need to get there or it just seems like a waste of time so one day i did decide to walk and i was wearing my cassock and I walk from my house, and I'm, the whole thing's in a neighborhood. I'm walking from my house, to, and I must have walked past. It was a nice spring morning. I must have walked past on a Sunday morning, maybe 10 to 15 people from the neighborhood, people just walking along. And I might have shared this before, so I apologize if you heard it before, but it was such an impactful moment to me. I was walking along, and I just, I'm the priest in this neighborhood. I'm trying to be overly smiley, overly nice to people, you know. Oh, well, you know, like us, Catholics are kind of cool, you know. And I, I'm walking through it, and, and not one of those 15 looked me in the eye. Not a single one. Like, I would look them in the eye from, like, 30 yards to when they're passing, and not a single one. I know I looked kind of weird in, in the cassock, but not a single one. But you know who loved on me like never before? It was their dogs. <laughs> their dogs are just like, they were trying to jump on me. They never, like, eye contact the entire time. And I just thought, well, there's a debate. But, you know, hopefully in heaven, these people will be there. Their dogs, there's a debate. But... In heaven, the people will be there. Like, and they're not even, we're not even paying each other attention. Wait, are we talking about the people? Like the dog walkers or the yeah, dogs? No, they're, they're walking their dogs. They don't look at me in the eye. They don't even pay attention to me. But the dogs like, go out of their way to pay attention to me. Yeah, yeah. Like, they, don't, they don't have that, that human stranger awkwardness. I'm saying that when I get to heaven, those same souls, I'm yeah, going to yeah. be in heaven with them and be united with them. And on earth, we didn't even pay each other attention. Yeah. Like, we walked right by each other on earth. And in heaven, that person will be my everything. Yeah. I will love them as much as Christ does because no, I'll be in that. Christ. I live in a busy city, and it's like that all the time. It's like, I don't know any of these people, but I'd like yeah. to know these people. Yeah. I'd like to meet you. I'd like to meet you. We don't have time. We just cross each other's paths. We have nothing in common. It'd be weird for me to introduce myself to you. There's a lot of that. Yeah. So, so what do you do? What do you do on a, on a busy campus or in a busy neighborhood to acknowledge the, the deeper connection that human beings have? The fact that we should love each other, even our enemies. The fact that even if I'm, you know, listening to a podcast or something like that and walking along, like, what, what, what do I do in that moment? Didn't you give up winking? <laughs> yeah. Me? No. I thought you were a winker. No, I'm not a winker. Oh. I think it's weird. I mean, I kind of <laughs> like it sometimes. Yeah. Well, it's really... I probably gave it up a long time ago. It's hard to just stare at people and just, like, you're trying to make eye contact right. and then you're just, like, watching them, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> Um, or you're trying not to look at like weird things that are going on with them or whatever. Um, so 
Actually, our friend, Father Gronsky, he taught me this. So um, Germans do this. Um, it's, kind of, it's kind of like the Indian head bobble. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where like they'll, they're, they just want to like acknowledge that they're paying attention to you. So then they'll, they'll kind of, you know. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Okay. That's, I mean, so anyways, the Germans do this, except they blink with both of their eyes. Um, and they're not winking, they're blinking. But they do it intentionally. So then as I'm passing these people, I just kind of go, you know, but that looks weird, you know, like I'm taking like a Google shot of them. <laughs> so I don't know. Yeah. Hey. So, I think you just got to, I, I mean, like a thought is um, you got to be open for someone who's interested in encounter, you know, because you can get in that mode, too. And then everybody's walking with their head down, you know, like their their earbuds in or they're they've got their program or whatever. And. There might be people, I, I don't know, I mean, I think if you remain open, once in a while you'll have an encounter, and it kind of humanizes the whole place. I lived in the country for a little while, and it was fun. It was different than that. I mean, people, when they were passing each other, like on the, on the road, you do this little wave. It's kind of like a finger wave. Right. I love it. I love right. it. I got it's used to it. Country. Now I do it all the time. People in the cars are like, what is that? No. <laughs> <laughs> they want to, I, I don't know. I mean, it's just like an encounter. Yeah. Acknowledge that another person's there. Mm-hmm. But if you stay open, I, I really think that can, that can change things. It's a simple thing. Me and my buddies used to go to Vegas every year before going back to school. So, like, before the school semester started, we'd go every year. Go on. <laughs> yeah. and, and we well, would. Is this a recommendation? When I was, like, absolutely. I was, I was, I was young and, and relatively good-looking. My friends were young and good-looking. And we would walk through Vegas. And humble. And, yeah. Relatively, and 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 uh, I had hair. Um, walk through Vegas, and there's this thing about Vegas because everybody's there from somewhere else, and you're walking down the strip, and there's this just utter like deep, deep seated flirtation. You flirt with every girl that walks by, but but the form the flirt takes is you look at them for a second, and then you give this look like not worth my time, and you look down. And it's a thing. You guys don't want to talk about. You have it on college campuses, right? It's like you, you, you look at someone and you acknowledge like that there's somewhat of, a, of an immediate attraction there, mm-hmm. but like no, and and you, you do it as as an insult, but it's done out of insecurity. So me and my friends would do this thing where we would we would bet each other and say we we want to be the first one to look at every woman and smile with just the purest simplest greeting that there is. And so we, we kind of got it down. And you always, almost always catch somebody off guard. But every once in a while, a girl would give me that look before I could give it to her. And that was like, you lost. You just lost. <laughs> so you're, we, we, we'd walk through Vegas just like, just you look, look, her, look her in the eye. This is so rare in Vegas. You look her in the eye, give her just the, the purest smile, and then just go by. You know, and it was yeah, it was just so beautiful because it, the culture it is it is, and it's it's easier to do there because there is this this greater attitude. I'm sure it happens on college campuses too. I went to University of Steubenville where everybody does that. I mean, you greet it's like a Catholic wonderland there. Like you, I mean, everybody's smiling. All the guys are opening the doors for the girls. One time, I pulled into the circle, and this girl comes running up to me and says, "You know, I need to run to the pharmacy. Is there any way you can give me a ride?" And I said, "I am so sorry. I need to run to class." And this guy, like two cars behind me, hears her and goes, "Just take my car. I'm in a hurry too, but I'm in mailbox like 402." And he gives her like the keys to his car, and then goes running off. 
I was like, this is so Steubenville. It's like, you know, you're in need. I will help you. Like, I will go out of my way and trust you with all my greatest belongings. And then I go back to Albuquerque, New Mexico, where I grew up, and you open a door for a woman and get glares and insults and everything else. And you walk by a guy and smile at him, and he's going to punch you in the face. You know, it was, it was just very different. I had, to, I had to transition from the bubble of Steubenville to, like, Breaking the, Bad, the rough streets of Albuquerque. <laughs> exactly. I get it. I've never seen Breaking Bad, but I, I, I know that it's, I know it takes place in Albuquerque, yes. I think that's, you know, that cer- certainly we could say that any, anywhere that Christ is, it should be a very human place. And maybe start in the parish, you know, like that's got to be a place where people can encounter each other. Mm-hmm. And you can't do that. You can't just walk by and say, this person isn't worth my time. If you don't know somebody, you've got to introduce yourself. That's the other, you know. You could, you could be surprised by who you could encounter in a stranger. Um, even if you don't, you're not terribly interested, you don't feel like you have the time. Um, yeah, you, we, we want Catholic places to be human places, no? And I think for the most part they are. I think they're like that, like, like you're describing Steubenville. Um, but then that spreads. That, that should spread. But I don't know. I mean, I get busy with life, and I get kind of overwhelmed by... Um, even a self-expectation of, I, get, I need to connect with too many people. So um, I, know that I don't know. I mean, I think you, if you're prayerful, you can also ask Jesus, like, who are you guiding me toward? Ask the Holy Spirit, like, who am I called to encounter today? Who can I interrupt my life for? Because there's thousands of people, you know. But there might be somebody I'm called to really encounter today and, um, and see. You know, we, you, we mentioned, like, the poor, or we mentioned... Um, someone in particular need and Christ can be found there, you know? I don't have any delusions of saying, you know, I'm going to walk through campus as a student one time and just do all the right pure and, and holy looks and somehow have an encounter with that person that time. I don't think that at all. But one of my, one of my main methods of evangelization, I love, I don't, I have ADD really, really bad. So I do all my, my studying, all my work in coffee shops and bars, <laughs> um, just cause I need kind of craziness going on. So I don't even really have an office. I have coffee shops and bars and that's where I go. And then, you know, I'm, I'm that creepy priest sitting at the bar all alone for like the first three times I go to a bar, but the fourth time, fifth time you start learning names you start having people walk up to you and go, are you really a priest? You have people that, that, that want to actually talk about something. It's very much like being a chaplain in a hospital. One time I, I, I was walking through the hospital wards when I was on the 24-hour call, and this woman came up to me and said, are you only here for the patients? And I said, no. And she said, can we talk? I said, sure. And she had this intense, intense experience of, of like her daughter struggling with satanic things. and things. It, was, it was absolutely incredible like what she saw, but it, in a hospital she pulled me over right away. And, and you guys aren't clergy, most of you, so you're not wearing collars. But, but I do think if, if you can give someone, there, there's a, I forget her name, the saint. She was a prostitute in the square, and I've seen this in Ukraine. Like, the prostitutes in Ukraine, they don't wear anything. They just sit on, in third world of Ukraine, they just sit on the side of the street, and they're offering their, their bodies by not wearing anything. And so, like, when you're driving by in a car, it's just the most awkward, awkward thing. And it's horribly, horribly tragic. But this is not new. There, there is a saint, I'll, I'll think of her name in a moment. Um, anyway, she was a prostitute, and the bunch of priests and bishops were walking by, and, and she saw the bishop, all the other priests looked away, because she was naked, but the bishop looked at her with such a loving, beautiful gaze that she followed him. Yeah, and she's like, her. who are you? 
Like, I've never seen that look before. I've never received that look before. Everybody knows I'm a prostitute. I've never seen a look of love and encouragement, and all it was was a look. And she followed him, and, now, and then she, he talked to her about Christ, and, and then she became a saint, you know. And I, I, this, this, we were talking earlier about the, the scripture story of Acts of the Apostles, soon after Pentecost, after Pentecost, right? Mm-hmm. He's doing his, his uh, doctoral thesis on Acts. So um, after Pentecost, Peter and John are walking into the temple. There's a paralyzed man there. He's every morning. You guys know the story. And he's begging, obviously, for money because he's paralyzed. He can't work. And they walk in, and they say, and what does Peter and John say? They say, just look at us. It says that he, they, they look intently at the beggar, and they ask the beggar to look intently at them. Yep. That's one of the translations, intently. Do you know a better yeah, translation? No. Okay, it's so good. The, a good translation, intently. So Atenizo. Yeah, yeah. Amen. Yes. I believe you. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so, like, th- this, I, I thought, how often do we look intently at a beggar? When's the last time you guys looked intently at a beggar? And even more so, when's the last time a beggar looked intently at you? I think there's this mutual shame. Like, they're shamed to be begging, and we're somehow shamed to being asked for something. But it's just it's such a beautiful start. Just look intently at me, and I'm going to look intently at you. And as soon as that happens, what do they say? We don't have money, but we'll give you what we have. And they heal them. They have, they have Pentecost. <laughs> they have the Holy Spirit. And, you know, and what, is it that, what is it that we can and should offer to the stranger? Jesus was a stranger. He was God and man. That's, he is definitely the other. He is the stranger. What we have, obviously, the strangers in our lives, the, the ones we walk by on campus, or the just the people we see. How do we make it not have that awkwardness of shame in the moment? I'm super awkward. <laughs> I can't. I can't look at people because I'm. I'm already thinking. What are they thinking? I have my own thoughts. Can they read my thoughts? So I usually just kind of like give them that, and then like the half kind of. <laughs> you know? Like I was just, I was just at the uh, airport. I flew in from uh, DC yesterday, and um, uh, I like looking at people in the airport because I'm not going to see them again, you know. And I like talking to people in the airport because I'm probably not going to see them again or whatever. But then um, I was doing sort of my shtick, and uh, all of a sudden, one of my parishioners walked by, and uh, it was kind of like, hi. Because <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know what to say Because I actually didn't know her name I didn't know her name And, and she walked by and everything So um, so yeah, I mean Part of it's just the awkwardness Like there's that awkward sort of I don't really know what to do It's like the elevator go- door's closing And we're both there together And yeah. I guess we just Not do anything Is there a way of acknowledging the awkwardness? Oh, I do <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, like, not, I mean, on the street. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, they say the eyes are the window of the soul. It's one of those things that's very intimate, strangely enough, because it's like, you, you know, you can make eye contact, you can make eye contact with a crowd. It's like in public speaking, that's a regular rule. But when you're really close to somebody, or it's like, you know, this is going to start a conversation, mm-hmm. it's like, do I want you to know me? Mm-hmm. Do I trust you? I think that's kind of. Part of the part of the worry is like, should I trust? Should I trust people? Should I trust anybody? Uh, and there's a lot of fear out there. It's a fallen world. It's a broken world. You kind of have to 
ease into that. And I think uh, that's kind of the, a lot of the cause of like, do I want to encounter this person? Or are they going to be an imposition? Even with a little conversation, you know, um, it's a lot more controllable when I can text a friend and ignore somebody. Like on the buses in Rome, Rome used to be a very like, um, I mean, it's like a very uh, familial place, very social place. And um, when I, even when I first got there six years ago, it was like people are talking to each other in public, uh, strangers, you know. And now you have a lot of people who are in public transportation or on the streets or whatever are just on their devices and everything and are avoiding the people around them. And I don't think it's like a malicious thing necessarily. It's just I feel more comfortable with this person I know rather than the stranger. And um, I think this is kind of a call to just open up and be ready, be ready to meet Jesus. I think the Christian has a different like, possibility than the average person. The average person is going to meet another human being who's fallen and who might be awkward and uncomfortable and everything. But the Christian, with every stranger they meet, has the opportunity to meet Christ. And that, I think, should be kind of like an exciting prospect, no? One time, uh, it's actually here, Father Dave Nix was giving a talk, and he said that um, he finds that if he really if he really fights against abortion, if he really fights for the pro-life cause, he says for some reason, this, I mean, I don't think it's overly pious, it sounds that way, but he says, he says children will, will be much more like open to him. Like, like he'll see children just passing by, they'll look at him. Mm-hmm. And he says like, there's like this, this almost spiritual bond that he has because he's fighting for children. And then there, there's almost this understanding that children have that they see it. And I thought, well, could that apply to chastity? If, if, if you have, if you have someone who's really pure, if you're really fighting for purity, if you're really fighting for chastity, you know, is there some deeper reality? We're all connected in the body of Christ. Is there some deeper reality where if you, if you are pure and chaste, will you, will, will, will in, in, if a man or a woman, will the other see that in you in a deeper way? We were told when I was in pre-theology, after one semester, we went back to our homes, and I went back to Albuquerque, and our coordinator of the pre-theology program, all of us are studying for the priesthood, and he said, he says, don't be surprised if people give you weird looks on, on public transportation. Don't, don't be surprised if people give you weird looks in the street. He says, they see a change in you. They see a Christ in you. you. You've given over your life to Christ for three months, three months, and, and you've changed. You, your, your, your countenance has changed. The way you look has changed. And there's, there's some spiritual bond that will happen. I think that's what Father David was talking about. But it's like, is that the case? If I, if I decide, I know Father Brady Wagner does this. I know um, Father Peter Musset does it. Um, where they will, they will walk around the campus. They will walk around the campus and, like, just pray. It's like they see themselves very responsible for this campus. I think you do it at, at Calvary Cemetery, right? Uh, you yeah. just gotta walk walk Mount around Olive. Mount Olivet, excuse me, Mount Olivet Cemetery. It's like you you walk you walk around the neighborhood where. You, so I have spiritual I have spiritual authority over really all of Colorado for Byzantines, but like we we all have our parishes. We 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 and have Wyoming. our uh, and Wyoming. Um, we 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 have we have Western our our, our kind of air exactly area of authority. And the, God said, "This is your area. This is your job is to save souls in this area." So they would walk around the campus and just say, "I'm gonna." kind of pray for everybody I come across and pray for the campus that I walk around. If you guys have ever seen the movie Ostrov, it's a Russian movie, it translated The Island. Oh, yeah. This, this is it. I've seen it. This is it. <laughs> I, didn't know, I didn't know that yeah. Russian title. So it's, it's called Ostrov, it just means The Island. It's cool. And it's I hope like I'm really not giving too much away here. Movie. But there's an exorcism cool scene, exactly. There's an exorcism scene at the end, and the priest 
casts out the demon without really doing anything in the moment. And the secret to the exorcism is, is that it's called the island. This he's not even, excuse me, he's not even a priest. He's just this layman that's living in a monastery. But he would take a little boat to this island every single day, and he'd walk around the island praying the Jesus prayer in Psalm 50. And if you know Jesus prayer, Psalm 51 in the Bible, in the Masoretic text. So, like, if, if you open your Bible and read Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, in your kindness. It's a very self-emptying, Christ-like psalm. And then the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So he prays these two things while he's walking around the island. If you know the theology, you're saying he's emptying himself. He's, he's doing a kenotic act. He's undergoing kenosis. I'm emptying myself onto this island. So he, he's a, an immense sinner. He did something horrible. The movie starts with him doing something horrible. He's a horrible, horrible sinner. So he walked on this island in his sin, emptying himself in repentance. And then all he has to do is bring the possessed girl to that island. And he puts her on the island, and there's an exorcism. Because he is, it's not him saying the right words. It's not him doing these things. It's literally him. He, he repented so much at this physical location. He just brings her there, and that's the exorcism. You know, so there's just something about the place. exactly sanctifying the place and in his by repentance. And by his own sacrifice right, and his so own understanding of sin. I don't, if I'm following what you're saying, I, it's, I, I'm a little nervous about... It's very pious. Kinda, it's very out there. Kind of making, like, uh, Pope uh, St. John the Twenty Third Parish, like a bunch of, like, staring gazers. <laughs> like, walking around campus, just, like, making eye contact with people. <laughs> being like, oh, we're sanctifying this place right now. <laughs> The, the quad, you on your, your skateboard, you with the frisbee, yeah, you with the frisbee. Uh, you just I, made I this kinda, really awkward. I kind of yeah. like it. No, I don't know. I, I mean, there's, I, 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 I know what you're saying. There's, there's something that changes us about the Christian life. And I think it does take, there's, there's something of a call that comes from Bishop Jorge and this whole idea of the other for courage, you know, and, and there, there's something of recognizing that grace is at work in this whole mystery of our life. Whether you're a priest, whether you're, um, you know, a, a devout Catholic who's, who's living in, in grace, there's a power that comes from Christ. There's a power that comes from the Holy Spirit in us that can be a gift to the other. It can be a gift to the stranger. And I think we underestimate that, that possibility even to the point of exorcism, even to the point of um, connecting with people who are so afraid, um, even opening the world, bringing... Like Jesus said, you are light in the world, in darkness. And I think there is something to just kind of being open and recognizing in yourself the potential to share something that you may not, you may not even immediately feel. I mean, we were kind of talking about this earlier on. And I, I admitted, like, as a priest, I'm supposed to be this sort of sacrament in the world. I'm supposed to be Jesus in the world. But I don't always feel that. You know, I'm, I'm this, this guy. I'm just Mike, you know, walking through the world. And I try to live as best I can. I try to live a holy life. I know I've received this, this sacramental grace. Um, but I don't always feel that. It's, it's hard to, like, connect with that reality all the time. But sometimes you get that sort of feedback. Um, and I think, I think most of us live with, without that regular awareness that we have a profound effect in the world and that we have a profound gift that we've been given that's being shared by our very uh, encounter with people, our, our very encounter with the stranger. And it's just like, I guess I would just encourage everyone here to, um, 
take confidence in the Christian life and take confidence in what God is doing in your life that, um, that sanctifies the world, that really brings um, both a humanizing to the world and can soften people who are afraid and who are in sin and, um, and evangelize, to bring the light, to bring Jesus, you know, to bring that gaze. When Peter walks out there, he, he needs a great deal of courage to tell this beggar, uh, look at us. You know, why? Peter, Peter, who, as, as far as we know, had just denied Christ. It hadn't been two months, and Peter had betrayed Jesus to his death. And then Peter says, look at us. I believe in Jesus so strongly that I have nothing else to give you, but he can do a miracle. And it works a, a profound grace. I just think that 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 chaste and pure look, that, that, that's the mustard seed that God uses to, to do something else. But there's, I think there is something about the foundation of whether you're, you're fighting for the pro-life cause and, and the, the ability for you to interact with, with you know, children, whatever it is, or you're, you're fighting, you're the good fight for chastity and purity, and, and that'll be recognized by, by people that you encounter, maybe even make you more attractive. You know, I, I think that is something that, that is deeper there, and, and that, that little bit is something that we can take and say, when I do just walk past someone on the street, I'm not expecting my smile or my my look to, to change their life. You know, that's not going to bring them to Christ. Christ is going to bring them to Christ. I kind of smile at them and then tag out. I smile at them and say, okay, Lord, now it's your job, you know. And just because they saw someone, you know, looking that way once, but I think there is a deeper spiritual reality there too. Um, but the next step, I think, is, is um, when we hear them say, you know, I give you, St. Peter says, I, I give you what I have, and that's the ability to heal. But I think one thing we have, St. John Chrysostom um, used to say that every single home should have a room for the poor. Like, every single home should have a room for the poor. Imagine that. If every single house had one room that a poor person could live in. Now, I think life is much more complicated nowadays. You don't, so you don't want to bring homeless people into your family homes and things like that. And, you, you know, there's all kinds of other issues. But I do think that the one way of making it very practical is if you're considering, you know, does every family or every student, does every person have one homeless person that they know by name and they know their story and and that homeless person can come to you and say like i don't trust people i'm not just going to give out money on the street i'm not but i will give money to three or four people that i know personally because i know when they're they're in need they'll come to me and if every single family or every single student every single individual had that one homeless person right that you knew you knew their name you knew their story you would look at them a couple times in the street and they're always on the same street corner so one time you just had time you pulled over you're like hey man you know my name's john you know can i get you something to eat i don't know how many times i've done that and only one in 12 years has actually had a meal with me mm-hmm. usually it's like they take the food and then go and i'm like i think it's that shame and awkwardness thing but sometimes they'll sit down and i'm like oh this is great having a meal with them. But I think if imagine if every single student or every single family had that one person, then 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 homelessness would be a lot easier to to do. You know. Yeah, I did that once um, at the cathedral when I was a focus missionary, and there was these guys that would always stand on the street corner, like as we would get out of the six thirty mass, and I said like with some of the other guys because I had to have somebody else go with me. I was like, you want to go to dinner sometime? And these two guys are like, yeah, yeah, let's go. So then we went to, um, uh, there used to be a Mexican place right across the street uh, from the cathedral. And we got chips and salsa. And this dude double-dipped the chip every time. 
And I was like, that's how you get hepatitis. <laughs> like, I don't know if I could actually do this. And I was like, I would, I would just let him go. And then I would kind of like, is there a way for me to just like get around that part or whatever? And then eventually I was like, I, I got to do this. You know, I have to receive that. So receive I, I shared something intimate with that man. Um, but like, it's going to, it does, it requires, it requires that awkward, awkward moment. And I was telling him, I was telling him beforehand, uh, when I went, I went to India uh, with uh, Focus. Um, some of you are, have heard of mission trips. Uh, they're super great. I would certainly encourage you to go on them. They're terrifying, especially because we come from such an affluent country, and most of us are not familiar with different different levels of poverty. I mean, it's one thing to go to like the the homeless shelter here, the soup kitchen here. It's another thing to be like in the middle of a street where there's not only like cow or like camel excrement, but like human excrement. And you're in open-toed sandals, and you just stepped in it, and it's like, God, this is real. So anyways, but I was going over there, and I was so afraid because I just thought, they're going to see right through me. Like, they're going to know this guy's not really on board. And I was talking to my priest friend about that uh, before I left, and he said something that, that has helped me all of these years, which is an act of love remains an act of love even if it's rejected. An act of love remains an act of love, even if it's rejected. So even if you look, even if you invite, even if, like, you can't, can't really take the chip, you know? Like, it, it's still an act of love. Like, because what the devil wants to do, what other people want to do is be like, you're not sincere, or you're a phony, or whatever. Um, I mean, it, like we were saying, it took a great deal of courage for Peter and John to say, look at us. Because they don't even know if they had the gift of healing yet. But Christ operated through them with the Holy Spirit, and people, were, people received mercy through that. And I think that so often what prevents us is just that, that feeling of, but I'll look dumb or I'll look stupid or shame, and, and that, we just got to get over that. I mean, it doesn't look like I have a whole lot of pride, you know, given like, you know, that I walk around with this on my head, you know, all the time. But I'm still, I mean, I am thinking about like, what are, what are people, what are people thinking? Yeah, I'm a double dipper. So I got a guy named Doncho over there across the, he lives right across the house uh, or across from our front door at the house in Rome. And Doncho, uh, he says, Buongiorno Padre. You know Doncho. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Buongiorno Padre. And he's always begging, you know. And for me, I got to a point of frustration with Doncho because I talked to Doncho. He's my buddy, you know. I'm trying to be friendly and everything, but I couldn't get it right because he he wanted money, and I would be like, "Well, can I get you medicine? Can I get you some food? Can I get you some stuff?" And he would kind of blow it off, you know, everything. And I tried and I tried, and I was just like, "All right, I guess I'm going to pray for Doncho." I'm going to say hello. And I was nice and everything, but it became hard to look at Doncho because I was frustrated with him. Like, Doncho, you got to take what I'm trying to offer you, man. And, and he wouldn't, you know. And I kind of, it, it became difficult for a little while. And then one day I was going out. I was leaving the classroom. I had, I had been teaching. We were celebrating something. I had been giving out chocolates. And then I had a few left. And as I was leaving, I was like, I don't want this chocolate. I don't really like dessert. 
So I'm going to give him to Doncho. I gave him to Doncho, and he was delighted. <laughs> and it was like, yes, jackpot. I got it. You know, and now every time I see Doncho out there begging, I'm bringing him chocolates. Well, not every time. Sometimes I'm just like, hey, Doncho, get your own chocolates. <laughs> but sometimes when I remember, like on my birthday, I was like, I'm going to go buy Doncho some chocolates and everything. But it was like, it's kind of like perseverance. And I went through this experience of like, I can't look that guy in the eye. But for me, it was like frustration. It was like, I don't know what you want, but you're not accepting what I'm given. And it did take some perseverance. And just, I, that's like love, though. I mean, this was a guy who was put in my life. I saw him all the time. I was just like, I know I'm supposed to connect with that guy, you know? When I was uh, also in the hospital, I, would, I was so intimidated for that reason because I was, I was like 22 years old, first-year seminarian. They put us in clerics. So we're walking through the hospital as a first-year seminarian wearing clerics, and, and I, I thought, you know, I'm going to walk into someone's room, and they wouldn't let us pick and choose. Like, we had to walk into every room, and like, we had to walk in there. I, just, I was waiting for someone to go, who do you think you are? Like, I'm in here suffering immensely. Who do you think you are coming in here, walking into my room, thinking you can help me? How are you going to help me? I, I, was just, I was ready for that conversation. And I was just going to be like, sorry, bro, I don't think I can. I'm just some kid wearing a collar. Yeah. You know, that's, I was just, that's what I was going to do. That's all, but nobody ever did that. Like, in two years, nobody ever did that. But, but there, there was something, when I finally admitted that to the people who were guiding us, they said, like, they said, like, who do you think you are? Like, you're so nervous because you do think that you're going to walk in there and help. You're nervous because you think they're not going to recognize. But he says, the Holy Spirit's been at work in that person's life for the time they were conceived. Yeah, and they're going to be at work in their life after you leave the room. You're a little blip on the Holy Spirit's work. You're going to walk in there for a moment and touch that person's life in a small way, and the Holy Spirit's going to do something with it. So I think that's what these, hopefully, these encounters are. These encounters are moments that are our little tiny small bits of what God's doing in that person's life and this might just help it go a little bit and honestly it's like St. Teresa the little flower right I just want to be the pinky toe on the body of Christ you know I want to be the smallest most insignificant thing but as long as I'm a member of the body of Christ it's a, it's a beautiful beautiful thing and if the Holy Spirit can move make help help allow me to help his work for that one moment that one glance that one look that pure look that that loving look whatever it is I, I think that can be immense and there's something about, like, if we don't know what we have to offer, what did Peter say? I give you what I have. One of the things, to take, for example, the Samaritan woman, we've called her Fotina, but this, this, this uh, just means light. But the Samaritan woman, she walks into the town, Jesus says, right, she's sitting at the well, um, she says, why are you talking to me, Jesus? Um, Jesus says, you know, give me some water. She says, no, we shouldn't be talking. And he says, um, you know, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me to give you living water. Anyway, she converts, she goes into the town, and she says, after Jesus asks her, bring your husband, she says, I don't have a husband. He says, yes, you're right. You've had five husbands. The man you're with now is not your husband. And she goes into the town after that conversation and says, come see the one who told me everything I ever did. And that, that phrase, everything I ever did, meant that she identified herself with her sin. All he said was, you've had five husbands. The one you're now with, with now is not your sin, not your husband. Like, he pointed out only the negative things about her life. He didn't point out anything positive at all. But she said, he told me everything I ever did. So in other words, her entire self-identity was her sin. And so she goes walking into the town, and she says to them, he told me everything I ever did. And she used that for evangelization. Because if you remember, the whole point of why she's out there in the middle of the day is because she's the town, the object of all their gossip, 
All they do is gossip about her. She doesn't want to be the object of gossip, so she comes out at the hottest part of the day so she doesn't have to see them, so she doesn't have to be the object of gossip. And then she runs to them after she encounters Christ and uses her weakness, her vulnerability. So there's something beautiful about the fact that she says, what do I have to give, like Peter and John? What do I have to give? I give you my vulnerability. I give you my weakness. I give you the awareness of my sin and the fact that that leads to repentance. I know many people who have convinced me to be a more prayerful person because they've, they've told the story about how how much sin they were in, and yet how much sorrow they felt for it. You know? And so even that in those small encounters can be, what do you have? I, I have like my sin. I have my repentance. I like I'm wondering, uh, where do you preach weekly? St. <laughs> <laughs> John the 23rd, 3 o'clock p.m.? No rivalry. Yeah. <laughs> you can go to both. It'll be a long day. You can go to both. Right. That's true. There's a, there's a profound testimony that comes from, um, from conversion. And, um, and just like, yeah, the, the experience of having been loved, having been seen, having been known, mm-hmm. um, that is, I think, the privilege or, or the potential privilege of every Christian if we take it seriously and we actually go deep with Christ, you know, to, to connect on that level. So I'd say that's my, that's my challenge to you guys is when Peter and John say, I, I give you what I have. Like, we've just celebrated the resurrection We've just received the death and resurrection of Christ in a very real way. We've had our baptisms renewed. What do we have? What is it that we have that we can give? You know, and I, I think it's gonna be much more much bigger and beautiful than you know, but it's a good question to ask our Lord in prayer. Mm-hmm.